I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, June 10th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a multi-agency approach to improving safety in the capital city. Then how an upcoming opinion from the Supreme Court could shape gun control efforts. Plus, a new documentary examines maternal health in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Law enforcement leaders and officials are exploring ways state, county, and local police can reduce violent crime in Jackson. The homicide rate in the capital city has risen sharply in recent years, and a shooting at the state fairgrounds last month left Agriculture and Commerce Commissioner Andy Gibson compelled to find collaborative solutions to the issue. Gibson held a summit this week with officials from multiple state and local agencies. He shares more on the effort with our Kobe Vance. The biggest takeaway, I think, was everybody agreed we can work together. We will work together. I think that's the first time that's publicly been said that the city, the county, the state, uh, uh, our fairground security chief, uh, we're all working together on this. I think that's that's got to happen, and it's got to have community support. There was a lot of people who showed up, a lot of uh, citizens, individuals, businesses, churches represented there at this meeting that, that want to be part of the solution. Can you talk about what your role could be and in, in why you're uh, spearheading this conversation about improving security in the Capital District? Well, the reason I'm involved is because uh, we're over the state fairgrounds, which is in Jackson, uh, which is host to the state's largest events, whether it's the State Fair uh, or the Dixie National Livestock Show and Rodeo. It exists to support agriculture. Uh, we have thousands of people, uh, multiple, uh, hundreds of thousands of people there every year. And uh, as you know, we had an incident April 30th with a teenage uh, shooter that drove up and shot at some other teenager and uh, that is a direct uh, attack on the safety of the fairgrounds. And as a result, uh, we're going to be more engaged working with these other officials to work against that. Uh, I did announce we have hired our first chief of security, Jimmy Herzog, who just retired from the 
uh, Mississippi Bureau of Investigation as deputy director there. He was a state trooper and then uh, uh, TAC uh, training officer, SWAT team, and as I mentioned, uh, deputy director of MBI most recently. <clears throat> and then we'll be renovating this armory as a multi-agency task force command center. I, I offered it today to be used by the city of Jackson PD, uh, Hines County SO, DPS, Capitol Police, all of us working together from uh, this command center, I think, will uh, do a lot to deter criminal activity uh, in the downtown area, for sure. Can you tell us a little bit more about that armory and what your plans are for it? Yeah, we have uh, cleaned it out. We've already met with the Department of Archives and History. Uh, it is a building that is a historical building that's a lot of work's already been done to and uh what's needed to be done is the interior renovation so we have met with archives of history about two weeks ago got their blessing to move forward uh, putting plans together for that and i think within the next 90 to 120 days by the end of the summer let's say by the start of fall we'll have this this thing operational it's it's uh it's going to be a place of staging grounds for multi-agency task force uh, law enforcement to meet, to operate out of equipment, uh, surveillance, et cetera. And, uh, you know, it does have a, a detention facility in it for temporary detention if needed. Uh, so we feel like it'll be a, a good use of this grand old building that was used uh, during World War II. And uh, it'll preserve it as well as make it a new use for law enforcement. And lastly, I wanted to ask, you know, what are your thoughts about getting so many people under the same roof uh, when it comes to state, county, local, uh, city officials being able to talk about addressing crime in the city of Jackson or as well as, I guess, other parts of the state? We just wanted to do something where there was no finger pointing, uh, but rather talking about ways that we can work together and how we, we admit the reality is that uh, not everybody has an agreement on exactly which strategy to pursue. But I think if everybody under this uh, summit today works together toward the goal of uh, fighting back against this crime wave of violent crimes, I think that uh, certainly that's the direction we need to go. And I'm very encouraged by the tenor of today's discussion, encouraged by the number of people who showed up to support the effort. And I think that, as I mentioned, that's the best result is uh, for the first time I'm aware of, all these different agencies said, yes, we want to work together. We're going to collaborate. We're going to share information. Uh, we're going to offer resources uh, to support one another. And uh, speaking on behalf of the Department of Agriculture and for the fairgrounds, we're going to do the same thing. We are uh, looking at this as a beginning point of a discussion, not the end. Is there anything else you'd like to share with Mississippians before we go? No, just encourage everybody to, uh, you know, recognize that although we may be tempted to think that this is a Jackson problem, it actually is a state capital problem. It's it's the capital city of our state. And so anything that affects our state capital uh, affects all of us, and we, we can work together to uh, make it a safe place. So uh, I'm encouraged by it and look forward to working with all the parties uh, involved to, to accomplish that goal. Andy Gibson is commissioner for the Mississippi Department of Agriculture and Commerce. Commissioner Gibson, thank you for talking with us today. Glad to be here. Thank you, Kobe, for having me.
Coming up, how an upcoming opinion from the Supreme Court could shape gun control efforts. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Lawmakers in Washington continue to debate gun control legislation following a wave of high-profile mass shootings. But an upcoming opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court could affect potential future limitations on the Second Amendment. Matt Steffi, professor at Mississippi College School of Law, says the case New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin considers restrictions on the right to carry. In part two of his conversation with our Michael Guidry, Steffi examines how the conservative-leaning court could issue an opinion that limits how both state and federal governments enact gun control measures. Those who advocate for the unfettered right of most or all citizens to own weapons would say that the parallel is in the free speech and religion clauses of the First Amendment. That in the same way, government uh, has to keep its hands off what we say, how we worship, and so on. That government has to keep hands off guns, too. There are parallels that run the other way. The, the, the Supreme Court has always recognized a constitutional right uh, to marry. Likewise, far longer than the constitutional right to gun ownership, the Supreme Court has recognized a constitutional right to travel. But that doesn't translate into strict judicial scrutiny of driver's license laws. Um, And it doesn't invalidate laws concerning who uh, folks can marry, how many, and uh, uh, what the legal prerequisites are. That regulation of marriage, regulation of travel, has coexisted beside those fundamental rights. Um, and so there are different ways that this can be viewed. The Supreme Court in Heller thought that gun ownership and gun regulation could coexist. The real question is whether this current court agrees. It would be astonishing that a statement made uh, in 1791 to preserve a state's rights to a militia was read to disable a state or the federal government from responding to the lamentable and recurring threat of gun violence. I guess that's one of the things that stuck out. There is this uh, duality in in looking at this issue that you mentioned earlier, and it's not just to the, the degree to which the federal government can or cannot 
limit the ability to obtain arms or what those arms might be, but also the potential inability of the states to be able to do anything to curb issues like gun violence on a more local level. If you're if you're a, a lawmaker looking at ways to address issues of gun violence, what do they need to be worried about uh, when it comes to any potential decision regarding uh, how and to what extent you know, regulations and restrictions on the ownership of, of firearms may be? Uh, they need to be worried in the same way a member of Congress is worried. In fact, the Second Amendment case, the Supreme Court is poised to decide uh, this uh, term and this month uh, involves a New York regulation that has been in place for nearly 100 years. Uh, and and observers expect that regulation to be invalidated. Uh, whether states have any more latitude than Congress is an open question. Uh, that the idea is somehow with the adoption of the 14th Amendment, it incorporated the Second Amendment protections against the states as the militia part fades and the right to bear arms uh, uh, is the operative part it is entirely possible the court will uh, will find that states have no more latitude than the federal government that's an open question I think I think uh, I, I think we're certainly going to see, more activity at the state and local level since Congress is in permanent gridlock. Uh, but I think states have to be worried about the same thing. Laws that ban certain weapons or that ban categories of ammunition or limit the right to carry, I think those are called into question. And I think we're going to see continued pressure um, uh in the courts by gun owner, uh, by, by advocates of unlimited gun ownership uh, to push back on uh, these laws on every front. You brought up the conceal uh, carry, you know, restrictions that, that, that do vary from state to state. And you said you put that in the bucket of, you know, it might end up being very limited in what they can do. Uh, does that really just come down to, you know, simple words in the Second Amendment, the the bear part? I mean, keep obviously can be interpreted as, you know, own, have in your possession. Uh, but the bear, uh, I imagine the, right. that that goes towards having it on my person, carrying it with me. And is that the, the justification you're using when you when you say that? those kinds of laws, those, those carry restrictions, could also be in that bucket of, of state regulations that could be teetering with the, 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 the direction of the, the court? Yes, I think that's right, that that would be the textual hook. Now, again, throughout almost all of American history, and including the majority in the Heller case, they can look at those words, keep and bear, and say, well, yes, you have a right. We have lots of rights, but it's subject to uh, regulation. For example, that you have the right to bear arms concealed on your person on your own property. But once you go out in public uh, in a vehicle or out in public, that concealed carry is subject to a permitting regime, for example. 
that that's one way to interpret fair. Another way to interpret fair is that any limitation, however slight, on the ability to bear arms as I wish offends the Constitution. And whether you favor one interpretation over the other doesn't have anything to do with the word bear, but everything to do with the judicial politics of the person deciding the question. Matt Steffi, as always, thank you so much, professor at the Mississippi College School of Law. It's always my pleasure. Coming up, a new documentary examines maternal health in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're print impaired, MPB's radio reading service is here for you. Our dedicated team of volunteers bring the world of news and entertainment to you. For information and to see if you qualify, call us at 601-432-6301. What is Chalkboard Chat? It's an MPB education podcast. It's a variety show providing information and resources for teachers, students, parents, guardians, and everyday people on various topics. It's learning something new with every publication. Chalkboard Chat. Find the podcast or listen from chalkboardchat.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Getty Israel is tired of talking about disparities. The director of Sisters in Birth, a women's health clinic that utilizes an integrative approach to women's health care, says more needs to be done to close the health care access gaps. This weekend, she's hosting a screening of Our Bodies, Our Stories. It highlights experiences of maternal health care in Mississippi. She tells us more about the project and her push to find alternatives for women seeking holistic care. I wasn't planning it. It took on a life of its own. Uh, Representative Summers, who's helping me to raise money for the birth center, she said, you need to create a (laughs) a one-minute video about why we need the birth center. I said, okay. So once I started digging and being exposed to more information about our history as it relates to birth, black women and birth in Mississippi and the politics and all of that, it just took on a life of its own. And uh, it's still growing because it's an hour and 15 minutes after we show it, there are more birth stories we need to include. And there's some things we need to elaborate on. But I also want them to know that we're doing something about it. Because I'm so sick and tired of these conferences and these meetings and these speeches about birth disparities among black women and the articles that I've written them. I'm tired of talking about it. Uh, We're doing something about it here with the clinic, but we know we need to do more. uh, And we're being pushed. And women are pushing us. Their needs are pushing us to build an alternative evidence-based health care system to what they are currently experiencing and running away from. And that will allow Uh, women to have access to care they're currently not getting. And so that's why I had to do it, put the public on notice that this is is an alternative and, and we're moving forward and we want the public to join us in that effort. The documentary is called Our Bodies, Our Births, and it will be shown Sunday at the Mississippi Museum of Art starting at 4 p.m. Why do black women in Mississippi need a birth center? 
Well, it's not just black women who need and want a birth center. Believe me, white women do too. Now, we get calls all the time from both groups looking for a midwife, some who want to have a baby at home. They don't want to have the typical experience, the usual standard of care they get from OBs, the typical OB. Women are looking for social support. They are looking for education, preparation that they don't get from OBs for childbirth. For many women, they're having their first baby. And midwives provide holistic family-centered care. Midwives go beyond just the clinical examination. You know, they get involved in a woman's life to a certain degree. They work with community health workers. They work with doulas. They work with breastfeeding counselors, something doctors don't do. So it's more holistic. The birth center would allow the midwife to deliver the baby. Currently, midwives have no hospital privileges in hospitals in Mississippi. There are only two hospitals in the state that will allow a midwife to deliver a baby, but she must also um, be hitched to a doctor, and if there is no OB on staff, she can't deliver. So there's no real freedom for um, the midwife, an opportunity for the midwife to practice. A freestanding birth center would be managed, administered uh, services delivered by a midwife. Now, we do have an OB working with us. She's the wonderful Dr. Beverly McMillan, and she practices just like a midwife. And we have another doctor working with us who's also holistic. So the birth center would give them the freedom to fully practice uh, their craft. Tell us a little bit about the organization you operate and how you're able to help women. Well, Sisters in Birth is now a clinic. We've been a clinic for now a year. And the clinic um, is a midwifery clinic. We have an OB who also works with us part-time and another doctor who specializes in disease prevention. But Sisters in Birth started out as a community health organization. We're nonprofit, we're 501c3 charitable, and uh, it started out with community health workers who were providing non-medical services, which include dual services, home visitation, education, childbirth preparation, nutritional counseling, exercise, breastfeeding, health screenings, community health workers who do it all. Now the community health workers are attached to the midwife and the doctor. So they work together as a team to provide holistic care to our patients. Most of our patients are Medicaid beneficiaries who have not had any uh, wellness exams or any kind of primary care prior to becoming pregnant. So when they present to our clinic, many are at risk. Maternal obesity is like the elephant in the room in Mississippi, and doctors are failing to address this. That's what we address. So we've integrated clinical care, and community health, and it works best that way, and it is a CDC best practice. In medicine, you're supposed to do no harm. How is it that black women aren't getting the care that they need or um, women of color are being misunderstood or not offered the same quality of care in some instances? Well, let me say this. I think women in general are not getting quality care. I've heard from plenty plenty of white women who complain about the experiences they've had with their doctors, and many of these women have private insurance. So this is not a problem that's endemic to black women, uh, but it is prevalent, disproportionately happening or occurring among black women. And I think that there are a number of factors involved. Some of those factors are occurring in the healthcare system. 
And I think it's because our healthcare system is pretty much driven by expediency as well as profit. So the relationship or the contact or the interaction between doctors and patients is simply not good in general. In addition to that, when it comes to delivering a baby and when it comes to being pregnant, women are very sensitive and they need more time, they need more care, they need more consideration. They don't get that from most doctors. Uh, As far as black women, black women present with being already stressed, having high levels of stress. They already have many risk factors that put them at risk, unlike white women. Many black women are already overweight at the time of their pregnancy. Most black women are on Medicaid when they become pregnant. Well, if you don't have access to health care before you come, become pregnant and you haven't had a wellness exam and nobody's talked to you about changing your diet or addressing your stress, you're already at risk of, of these things occurring to you. So I can't blame that on doctors. I blame that on the system and the state of Mississippi's refusal to expand Medicaid. I blame it on corporations that work black women uh, full-time on full-time uh, low-income jobs but won't give them health care so they can see a doctor. And so those women end up only qualifying for insurance when they become pregnant. And then two months after having that baby, they're going to lose that care, and that cycle repeats itself. So black women have more risk factors than most white women, even a poor white woman. And I believe that's why she has the worst outcomes. Getty Israel is the founder and director of Sisters in Birth. Our Bodies, Our Stories will be screened at 4 p.m. on Sunday at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.